On today's episode of the Free Marketeers, we're talking about the first part of the report from Zono Commission into State Capture and implications and links for the national health insurance, which is planned to be phased in steadily over the next few years. All of that right after this. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Hudson. I'm a research associate at the Free Market Foundation, and I'm joined for today's episode by Mike Setas. Mike is the managing director at Sanagi and the chairman of the FMF's health policy unit. Mike, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks very much for having me on, Chris. Well, only a pleasure. I'm glad that we have an hour to pick your brain on all things state capture and NHI. Very easy topics. I'm sure. I'm sure you'll solve all these things for us in, in the next five minutes only. So listeners and viewers make sure you take copious notes um, for those of you who are joining us live you will have an opportunity to ask questions to mike uh, later on but first we're just going to go through a few talking points and questions that i have for him and then we'll get on to any input that you will have uh, for us today so mike i thought we'd start off i mean obviously the broader context here is state capture and part one of the zondo commission's report which came out um, was it earlier this month or last month? Things are already moving so quickly. Um, so that'll be that'll be the broader context. But we're talking specifically with as well about the national health insurance. So I just wanted you to quickly just remind us what the NHI policy proposal entails and how you think it will affect citizens. Um, yeah, Chris, I think I think to maybe if, just to start to look at it, it's quite a um, it's quite an ideological proposal. Um, in that it's quite cemented in, in, in socialist uh, thinking. Um, and in, in, in that vein, so the aspects of it which tell us that is that it, it calls for a monopoly on all healthcare in South Africa. Um, it, it focuses on centralized control and, and planning around healthcare in this one entity that's going to be the NHR fund. And that's sort of kind of thinking with the, the thinking of the ruling party as their developmental state policy. Position. So it's very much a, a socialist ideology, the NHR, the principles of it. Um, the actual practicalities of it, I mean, it is a very substantial change to, to both things. I'll try and cut it down into very broad nutshell. But um, uh, the proposes very substantial changes to both the public and private sector simultaneously. It's one of the concerns is to very substantial changes all over the place. And how, how the difficulty in managing that and actually getting to the outcomes of what is intended from that. So that already is a concern. Um, and we established this NHR fund, which will be, it's otherwise known as a single purchase of healthcare for, for all citizens in the country. Um, and it will purchase uh, healthcare from both private and public sector providers. Um, and in, in doing, in getting the private sector in, what it's going to do is, is sort of uh, sideline medical schemes, so their role will be substantially diminished um, legally uh, through this bill. And now that's always to force everybody into becoming members of this single purchase of the NHR fund per se. So what that means is that um, citizens who currently on medical aid will be forced to use the NHR for the provision of certainly a, a substantial portion of their healthcare. And, and I think even uh, equally so for private sector providers, 
we would ordinarily rely on revenue from medical schemes for providing healthcare services to their members, they will now be forced to contract with the NHI because they're going to lose the, the revenue that they would have got out of the uh, out of medical schemes because that role has been legally sidelined as such. Um, in terms of public sector, there's also very substantial changes there. So at the moment, the way in which public sector healthcare is provided is the public uh, facilities, the, the, the hospitals, the clinics all receive budgets that come through from Treasury via the uh, provincial equitable share, the conditional grants. And those allocations are made to each of those facilities on a predefined basis. And those funds are then used to run those facilities during the year. Um, the way in which NHI is now going to change this is these facilities are not going to receive these automatic budgets anymore. They're now going to have to have contracts. Each, each facility is going to have to contract with the NHI. And in that process, then change from this model of receiving money through the budget process to getting money on a pay-as-you-provide basis. So very, very substantial change in the revenue, the remuneration model of the, of the public sector. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you can just sort of, just, and that's a very brief nutshell as to how I've explained it now, changing for the private and the public. Um, but you can tell from what I'm saying, this is not a small incremental change, a little tweak here and there. These are massive sweeping changes to both sectors. And I think what's very concerning about it is that throughout the NHR policy process, which is now about 13 years old, started in 2009, so it's been around a long time. There's been practically zero technical or feasibility analysis done in terms of some of these aspects. And there are many more than what I've just mentioned, because obviously time-wise, we couldn't go through everything. It's a very, very complex uh, proposal. But there's been very little technical feasibility analysis. So it's very concerning. That's it in a nutshell, but I'll just, I'll just emphasize how to affect citizens. The concern is that government's making very large claims that it's going to be so much better than what we have but they've done very little, if any, technical work to support those claims, to say that A, it will work, can it work, and, and I think the key issue is, can it be better than what we have? Why would we do it if it's not going to be better than what we have? Uh, and those are, those are some of the concerns that I think citizens should be, um, should, should, should be highlighted to citizens, um, because that will affect them. Thanks, Chris, over to you. Now, with again, linking this back to the state capture point and something that I've tried to illustrate and bring about quite often in some of my articles and arguments is that the more you mix the, the state and the government with sectors of the economy, the more you raise the chances for corruption. I know that doesn't always happen. And of course, there's a lot of corruption that happens in the private sector itself, but just you increase the incentives. If you if you lower the economic freedom, the, the level of economic freedom, the only way of people to get ahead is by political contracts and tenders and that right. kind of thing. It raises the stakes as well. So within that context, do you think, given the, the sort of setup, the proposed setup of the NHI, does it possibly increase the chances and opportunities for corruption in the future? Yeah, I think I think very much so. Um, I think there are two key, ele key elements to look at in this proposal. Um, one is that there's the centralized NHI fund, this single purchaser. Um, and you can kind of, uh, on a, from a layman's point of view, you can think about that as one giant medical scheme for the whole country, where every citizen in the country is going to be compelled to become a member of that medical scheme and get their health care there. 
Um, so it's that centralization aspect of a very vast amount of money. Um, if we look at what the what the white paper said in leading up to this proposal, um, although a technical costing analysis was, it hasn't been done, and that's another failing of this policy process. The, the, the white papers did allude to some sense of, of, of a budget. And what they're looking at there is in today's value, something around half a trillion rand annually uh, that will flow through the, the NHR funds. So that's, that's around eight and a half percent, maybe closer to 9% of South Africa's GDP. And that for a developing economy to spend that amount on healthcare uh, in the public sector is unprecedented. Um, so it's, it's the vast quantum of money that they're centralizing. And I think secondly is in the bill itself, the governance structure is incredibly weak. Um, it has no separation of powers, it concentrates power um, substantially. And I think those two components together, the centralization into a single entity and weak governance, I think it's going to be very appealing for the current patronage networks that exist uh, for the advancement of quadro deployment. So I think there are extremely serious concerns, and I, I, I don't say this alone, I think many other um, observers uh, have, have looked at this, and I, I think I cannot believe that this proposal actually sits in the context of where we are now as a country facing the, you know, the level of corruption that we've seen emerge out of the findings of, of the Zondo Commission. Over to you, Chris. I think we, we all know that you'll, you'll decrease bureaucracy and corruption by adding more bureaucracy and corruption. I mean, it, it follows, of course, that that's, that sort of thing will work. But are there any any recommendations or or sort of advice, not, not advice, not that the deputy chief justice Zondo, he can't sort of make regulations and laws, but anything that came out from part one of the Zondo Commission report, specifically regarding state-owned enterprises and state departments, he obviously made a bunch of recommendations and, and mm. sort of revamping and processes, especially of SOE yeah. boards. I mean, how do you think this could affect the NHI bill? It's one, I think he is very highly respected, his, his sort of, his insights carry a lot of weight. That doesn't mean that government officials are going to implement them, but theoretically, yeah. is anything that he pointed out that you think could affect the bill? Yeah, I certainly, I certainly think that his recommendations around how boards, how the boards of SAEs are appointed. I mean, um, I think, I can't remember, I know it was right towards the end of the first report, which, uh, yeah, a lengthy 800 page read, but um, it was towards the end of that in which he said that uh, it was absolutely imperative. I mean, he used various, I can't remember the exact words, but he used very, very strong words you know, to the extent that it absolutely cannot be left to the, the way it is. Um, and so I think in a nutshell, the, the NHR bill would have to change that component. Um, I mean, I'd like to see the whole thing scrapped, but you know, <laughs> that's certainly that aspect to it. Uh, that is a very damaging aspect. And you know, if we look at what President Ramaphosa said when he, when he gave uh, testimony at the Zondo Commission, I can't remember it was first or second time, but, but he described the manner in which the S, uh, SOE boards are appointed as a massive system failure. Now, and, and then Zondo has obviously, you know, come, come to the same conclusion and, you know, with recommendations of a complete revamp of, of how SOEs are appointed. But now, if we look at this NHR bill, which, you know, admittedly was past two and a half years ago in 2019, um, it, it, it actually implements this massive system failure that uh, President Ramaphosa referred to. 
I, I like the terminology, massive system failure. I think, I think it, was a, it was a good way of describing it. But if we look at the NHR bill, it absolutely entrenches this massive system failure. Um, in the bill itself, it's, it provides absolute authority and control of the entire NHR to the Minister of Health, virtually everything. Um, the Minister can appoint the entire board, the CEO, the chair, the vice chair. Um, there, I think there are nine subcommittees in the, um, in the NHR which control everything from you know, what benefits are provided to the uh, remunerate, uh, provided remuneration to provided accreditation, etc. And the minister controls and appoints all people in those committees as well. So it's an incredibly weak governance framework, and it flies completely in the face of what uh, what Sondra has put forward as a recommendation to to avert the results of those weak governance frameworks, and that is, you know, rampant corruption, cadre deployment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> Is there anything specific in the NHI bill that to you indicates that officials will be able to play fast and loose with citizens' health care? Um, I mean, there's obviously the the case of the minister being given very wide discretionary powers, but I was wondering if there was anything else that sort of stood out in that regard. And again, it's not, I very much want people, if you're listening to this live or afterwards, you know, sort of dissecting the conversation. It's not just about the current maybe government, obviously a lot of our focus is there, but this will give any future Minister of Health and a bunch of bureaucrats and politicians this kind of arbitrary power over people's healthcare decisions. I mean, it's not just presume that your worst nightmare, worst enemy gets this sort of power over your healthcare and government and what they what they could do with it. What in the NHI bill to you stand out, stands out in that light? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, as you say, I think besides the sort of the weak governance framework that gives all this amount of of power in terms of appointments. I mean, you're going to have to ask the question of who's going to get appointed. You know, right. people who are then compliant in terms of following whatever the minister or the, the ruling party wants to achieve in terms of, of running it. So it takes away a lot of a lot of choice from, well, it takes all choice away from, from uh, members who would be accessing the healthcare through the NHI. Um, I mean, the various subcommittees that exist will determine Virtually everything, you know, um, what the benefits package is, um, which hospitals, which doctors, which providers get contracted to provide services in which regions, um, you know, and I think along and, and and the amount of remuneration that they will be paid. Um, so you can see contesting between providers for for these contracts, and you know, no doubt will we see you know corruption happening in that process, and then what quality of care will be provided is you know to be like for example you know what we've seen in many cases with corrupt deals is that not only are the prices inflated but the quality of what gets delivered is very poor as well um so very much i think that that risk exists in the way this nhr bill has been put together um, it's weak across all of those things and you know centralizing such control as well you know dict like determining what healthcare is delivered in rural quasi natal from some committee that sits in Pretoria somewhere in a building with you know, 10 people around the table. It, it makes no sense. If we look at a good international example, uh, you know, the, Brit the Britain's NHS uh, was born in 1948. And I think at the time it was right for, its, for what it was uh, those years ago. And it was a very centralized system, very much like the NHR proposal is now. 
But Britain, over the years, had realised that the centralised control was not working. And by the, by the time the 80s had come around, um, they decided to decentralise the NHS. Over the last 30 odd years, the, the NHS is no longer the centralised monolithic. Um, it, it's in and it's in its name, but not in shape or form. Um, it's completely decentralised in uh, clinical decision making. It's even down to the to the aspect that members have choice over doctors, which district health authority they want to use, um, and because they they came to the realization on their own that the centralization of such on such a massive scale, health outcomes suffered and accountability was also a problem in it. So, I think the NHR is going completely against what international best practices show to work. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think like, it's, but the potential to pay faster than this, I think, is, is very much there. Thanks, Chris. Just on that note, are there any any systems like this around the world that the NHI is sort of modeled on, or as you say, is it sort of modeled on a an archaic view of, of healthcare sort of management as it was? Is there anything close to what, yeah, what yeah. the NHI proposes to do? Maybe, I don't know, we, we seem yeah. to obviously still share a lot of affinity for Cuba and Venezuela, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about Venezuela having much these days, but um, no, but absolutely. I think the closest example you'll find of this NHI proposal internationally is Cuba. Um, mm. And I think we all know the love affair that the ruling party has with, with everything Cuban. Um, in fact, there are only five countries in the world that have built an, an equivalent to what NHI is proposing. Uh, now, if you think about it, that there are, are nearly 200 sovereign states in the world, and only five have gone down this road, and Cuba's the only developing economy that's gone down that road. So we would only be the second developing economy to do that. And the obvious reasons to it, because it's a very expensive model. Um, Cuba's public health expenditure is 11.5% of GDP. Um, they've outlawed private health insurance, so you can't get. But just 11.5% is unprecedented in, in developing economies for public health steps. So. It just shows you the inefficiency of public of, of centralized monopoly systems. So I think it's a great question that you know Cuba is the shining example of what not to do. And the NHR bill is exactly what Cuba is as a public health system now. It was a national health system, in fact. Thanks, Chris. Well that uh, that portends well for the the NHR's uh, performance, I guess, for the future. Yeah. Just a bit about how the NHI would affect medical schemes and effectively it outlaws medical schemes from being able to provide services in parallel with the NHI. Yeah, so yeah. would this not amount to denial of healthcare in terms of section 27 of the constitution? Yeah, look, I actually, um, you know, I, I think that question has been posed quite a bit and actually the more I think about it, I think it, I think it, it contravenes section 27, but not just for members of medical schemes, I think for members who are reliant on the public service as well. Um, and I'll give you the reason. Uh, uh, sorry, things like James and are you talking about that sort of thing? No, no, I'm talking about the actual citizens who, who, who can't afford any medical aid and, and right. rely on the public sector, um, okay. you know, as, as, a, as a patient. Because um, right. Section 27 says that the state needs to implement any reasonable legislative and other measures and I think the key word is to achieve the progressive realization of access to healthcare services. And I think that's that last bit there's quite a key aspect. It doesn't direct that government must deliver healthcare. It just directs that government must create measures that achieve the progressive realization of access to healthcare. So whether that's private or public, 
is, is irrelevant. If, you, if, if the government's achieving it, then they would be adhering to Section 27. Now, it's obviously very obvious that taking away the medical scheme cover is in contravention to Section 27, and I think I don't think it'd be much debate around that, that, um, that you are then, that is regressive, it's not regressive in, in what it's doing. Um, but if we look at, um, if we look at the argument as to why government wants to go down this road, why the ruling party is adamant on this process is, the, the policy process has constantly argued that the private sector is expensive, and that's why the public sector is can't achieve anything better than what it's currently achieving. So therefore it's justified in destroying the private sector. That's its justification, but I mean, I, I, I certainly don't buy it because I, I can't see how public money and private money can conflate to, to affect one another in terms of its expenditure. So, um, so clearly with medical scheme members, section 27, I think is being contravened. Obviously the legal people will be able to argue this much better than me. But if we look at the public sector, the, the aspect of what they're saying is like arguing that uh, police struggle to fight crime because private citizens make use of private security services. I mean, it's, it's a ludicrous argument. Um, I mean, by, by having private security would alleviate uh, the police in terms of, of fulfilling what the police would have to do if there was no private sector. And the same applies uh, to, to health services. The more people are, rely on, the, on private healthcare, the less citizens have to um, rely on the, the limited resources that are available in the public sector, which means that the, the limited uh, public sector resources are then divided out over less people. So that improves their access. So the, the, whereas NHR does the complete opposite, it takes that away. So I would actually argue that Section 7 has been contravened right across the entire country, everybody, not just the medical scheme members, but I think also in terms of of citizens relying on public sector health services. Thanks, Chris. In terms of the public sector specifically and its sort of performance, um, there are myriad examples, unfortunately, over the years, uh, press coverage and investigations where we've seen uh, government claims that these things happen, you know, whether it's tragedies or just sort of uh, lack of maintenance. I mean, the most recent example being Charlotte uh, Makeke Hospital in Gauteng, which I think it's now nine months yeah. since the fire gutted it and it's still not a section of it at least, which is not yeah. operational and, and open again. And there's no indication of when it might happen again. So government, generally government argument is the public sector is under-resourced. Is there any merit to that argument? I mean, from an objective point of view. And so, for example, if the Zondo Commission were to investigate the public sector, would we see a similar picture to what's coming out now in, in the report from, from Zondo? Yeah, okay, so I mean, is there any merit in the issue of resource? So I think I think what's what's important to look at, and I, I just so you know, last year we did a we produced a research paper on, um, on on just identifying the health assets that South Africa has in both public and private. It was the one part of the research paper, and then the other part was following the NHR policy process and into the claims that they made in that policy process. And I think it was important from a point of view that there is this constant mantra from government about the public sector being under-resourced, both financially and in, in medical personnel. And that's the, the reason for um, for its, its inefficiencies or its, its insufficiencies at this point in time. Um, 
But in actual fact, if you, if from the research that we looked at, is the public sector is not as under-resourced as to the extent that government claims it is. I mean, obviously, we have a problem overall with with having enough doctors in South Africa and, and sufficient resources to that extent. But um, to give an example, the, the findings that we had was look over roughly the last two decades, uh, both in financial and human resources, uh, the public health sector improved substantially. Um, and the two areas, the two main areas are obviously financial budgets, allocations, and medical personnel. If we look at medical personnel, for example, um, this was a study undertaken by Treasury amongst other uh, public health departments. Um, the number of medical personnel working for the state, not posts, advertised, etc., actual full working posts, went from about 140,000 medical personnel in, in 2006 to 200,000 in 2016. So in the space of a decade, there was a 42% increase in the number of personnel working for the state in the public sector. If we look at the, at the public health budgets, uh, which is a very simple exercise, um, in real terms, so measuring it against taking out the effect of inflation and the effect of um, the growing population, the per capita health budget in real terms in 2020 was double what it was in 2000. So that's a very, very substantial improvement in public health allocation um, over that two decade period. Now, we haven't seen a concomitant improvement in health outcomes over that period. In fact, in many areas, we've probably gone backwards on that. So the concern, um, so you asked me the question, do I agree with that? And, and I think obviously I've answered that question, but no, I don't. Um, but the real concern is that the NHR health policy has been predicated on this lack of resources, which is simply not true. Um, the NHR, the, the large part of the driver of the NHR is saying that give us more money that big pot of half a trillion rand annually, and we'll, we'll give the whole country very good health care. But the public sector's already had a lot more health, a lot more uh, money, a lot more doctors, and things haven't got, haven't got better. So they're actually already contradicting themselves in terms of what they're claiming they will be able to, to do. So I think that answered that the, the first part of the question, do you agree with that? And, and obviously I think you know, we can safely say that I don't. Um, your, your other side of it was, if, if Zondo did do an investigation on the public sector, what would we find? And I think it would probably be just more of the same um, as to what his current findings are. And, and although the Zondo Commission didn't specifically investigate the public health sector, I think there are a few things that we could look at to get a sense of it. Um, the most obvious and, and most public one, obviously, was the Digital Vibes contract, uh, which in reality, quite a small contract in the bigger picture of, of you know, billions of state capture, but nonetheless, for a very high profile, uh, uh, the, the previous Minister of Health who was involved, he obviously stepped aside because of the, the amount of outrage around it. Uh, we can look at things like the PPE procurement scandals from two, almost two years ago, where the SAE is investigating thousands of contracts, which they've already concluded, I think, two days ago, that um, all sorts of adverse findings in those amounting to billions and billions of rands. Uh, I think uh, well, probably one of the most horrific um, examples is the very public assassination of Babita Diokaran, who was a whistleblower in the department. Um, you know, clearly, she must have been uncovering some very substantial funds for whoever is perpetrating what she's investigating to have gone to such extreme lengths of assassinating her. Um, so, you know, I think, I think a lot of things like that that we could look at, and I think that the most, probably the, 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 uh, the most specific one would probably be something um, 
out of the Office of Health Standards Compliance. Um, now, this is not actually a very well-known office, but it, it's an office that exists in the Department of Health. Um, from a layman's point of view, we can probably think of it as a sort of clinical auditor general. Um, they do audits on uh, the public health system. Every four years, they'll rotate to have completely covered the entire public health system. Um, and they then put out their audit reports uh, and their findings. Um, it's unfortunately not a Chapter 9 institution, so it does serve it does serve at the at the pleasure of the Minister of Health. So it could they could be removed if they started, you know, um, you know, covering too much. But fortunately, they are still going. They have run for quite a few years now, and their audits come out with thirteen broad categories of findings, ranging from clinical skills to outcomes to cleanliness, uh, sort of staff attitudes, but. The two lowest scores out of those 13 are line governance and operational management skills. Now, the, the office requires a, a, um, a score of 80% or more in order to meet the minimum health standards, the compliance aspect, if you like. Now, in governance, they scored 22% on average across the entire uh, public health system. And in operational management skills, they scored 35%. Those are the two lowest scores across their 13 uh, categories. Now, if we go to look at Zonda and we say, what, what were the Commission's findings? I think in an absolute nutshell, you could break it down to that. Governments broken down, that failed in, in various aspects, and then a lack of appropriate skills within the various positions needed to run those departments properly. In, in essence, the, the practice of cadre deployment. And I think those are the two, to my mind, those are the two essential components of the Zonda findings who broken down governance findings and the, the practice of cadre deployment, which meant unskilled people were placed into positions, um, you know, because of loyalty rather than because of skill. So on your second part of your question, I think, yes, I think that the findings would be pretty much the same. Thanks, Chris. Oh, maybe if he, uh, if he sticks around for another 200 years, he'll, ha he'll have time to investigate healthcare as well. But and along with everything else, there's so much in this country, unfortunately. I, I believe the the cover story of this week's Financial Mail asked the question, why isn't President Ramaphosa really winning, you know, the fight against um, corruption, which is uh, the war against corruption, which is interesting. And a few more cynical commentators have said, well, to win a war on anything, you actually need to have a problem with that something and have an issue with it. And I wonder whether there's some some truth to that and how embedded unfortunately many in the ruling part of the ANC are just yeah they, they can't sort of move out of these habits which have been established now for years mm. and months unfortunately yes uh, yeah, there, was a, there was a fantastic article on politics where uh, I think two days three days ago by uh, W. Johnson on the history mm. of, of the ANC and how you know the, the cohesion and the requirement of of a very disciplined, cohesive being. It's just such a long history of the ANC that it, it's not going to be able to break itself up to, mm -hmm. to fix it, to put the country first, if you like. But anyway, I digress. No. <laughs> um, moving back to NHI, I just wanted to give you a chance to highlight how we compare to other countries. So again, that argument by government of, oh, we compare so poorly against, oh, we, we spend so little on... on public health and that's why it falls so so poorly just wanted to ask you how we compare to sort of other i guess we'd call them middle income countries i don't think we 
we're, we are part of the OECD, but we're not sort of the top echelons, obviously, but just how you think we compare to sort of peer countries in terms of healthcare spend. This can be overall, or you can do the sort of public-private breakdown, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I think I think I mean quite easily the the research paper that we did last year actually touched on this aspect. So we are we are still a middle-income country. We are sort of starting to head down and, and may well fall out of it at one stage, yeah. some stage. But we, we certainly have been there for for a long time. Um, I mean, when we when we look at, at how we compare in terms of uh, two aspects with peer countries, uh, public health expenditure and and clinical outcomes. Um, we, we don't we don't compare well unfortunately certainly in terms of the the findings that we we, we can came to um what we did in our we did a kind of specific exercise in uh, we took we took south africa's per capita gdp and then we took uh, 24 countries that that were immediately higher than, than south africa's per capita gdp um, so all countries we compared to all had per capita GDPs higher than South Africa. So we were comparing against richer peer countries. Um, and the very top country out of, out of the 25 countries was the per capita GDP was roughly double what South Africa's was. So we had that, that sort of spread of, of GDPs. Then when we, when we looked at um, the pub, our public health expenditure, uh, we ranked 10th highest out of the 25 countries. So even though we're the poorest country on a per capita GDP basis, our public health per capita expenditure was the 10th highest out of the 25 countries. Um, so it, it meant we actually spent comparatively well compared to these richer peer countries. But when we looked at health outcomes, we looked at five-year mortality rates and infants, one-year one mortality, we ranked almost last. Um, I think we were third last in the one and, and second last in the other category. So in essence, citizens aren't really getting value for money in terms of the, the amount of money, taxpayer money that's being spent in the public health sector. Um, but I suppose, uh, maybe a bit cynical, but you know, it's, it's not really out of line with many of the other areas in which many critics also argue that um, our expenditures are, are not out of line, but our outcomes are, example, education. Um, so yeah, I, I think, Chris, it's, it doesn't look good when we compare to, to many other countries, unfortunately. Thanks. And just on that last point, do you think, even if you don't have any sort of hard insights into this, but do you think the last two years of lockdowns and just the main focus on COVID, would this have changed anything at all in terms of that healthcare spend? Do you think it's going to radically sort of patterns have shifted? I mean, obviously people, especially in the first year in South Africa of lockdown, they they don't have a choice they couldn't go to their, their doctors for example um, but how do you what does your gut tell you how COVID might have might now have shaped healthcare spend um look i think i think our two sides i mean i know the private sector actually um financially did very very well out of it because all the surgery all the sort of elective surgical procedures were or many of them were, were delayed or, or done away with so i mean a lot of medical schemes for example um, delayed their increases because they had built up such massive reserves. Um, but conversely, that meant a lot of private sector practitioners didn't earn money in that stage. So for them, it wasn't great. It would have been very bad. Um, for the public sector, I think in principle, like everything should have stayed the same. But I think the the economic damage that COVID's done means that the, the, the future budget allocations to, to health specifically, I think, are going to come under pressure. 
we already saw it last February with the budget speech. The a lot of there were quite a few cuts in the in the health space. I think in terms of some of the uh, on the HIV um, program, there were some cuts to that. Uh, I can't remember a few others. I know there was some. There was some um, certainly some concern around. Uh, so I think I think the public health budget, along with many other public budgets, are going to come under pressure because of our, our macroeconomic position. Which has obviously been largely affected by COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I don't necessarily see that sort of macroeconomic position strengthening. Strengthening. If we get more than two percent growth, I think this year that would be quite an achievement. But <laughs> it is from a low base, so let's let's see yeah. what we get in the February budget. It's almost, I mean, it's end of January now, so we don't have to wait too long to hear sort of the state of of the country's econ uh, budget at this point. Yeah. Um, but I, th I think the key issue is that unless unless a lot of these uh, you know policy principles are, are, are fundamentally changed or, or realigned, we're not going to see a, uh, an improvement in we're not going to see growth. Let's put it that way, very very limited growth. Um, so a lot of those structural issues just need to be changed. Um, I think they well they well they've been well discussed already in the public domain. So yeah, it's, before we get into the final question from my side, I just wanted to ask you, this, is, this idea has been floating around a lot. I don't know if it can be applied strictly to healthcare, but maybe in some ways it can. Obviously, you'll know better than I will. But the idea of state proofing, so we, we're now talking about the state failing to provide a lot of services and communities and individuals trying to sort of take care of themselves now, doing a lot of normal services that the state should be providing for themselves last year with the July riots, we had communities taking security and protection sort of into their own hands, a very stark, uh, unfortunate, but necessary example of, of what happens when the state sort of starts to fail its obligations. Do you have any sort of advice or insights for people who are interested in state proofing their healthcare? Is that at all possible? I mean, if the NHI obviously happens, then it'd be more difficult than not. And a lot of part of the argument also against the NHI is that for more well-off people, they can simply head overseas to get their health care. But for the majority of South Africans who are already under a lot of pressure, inflation is increasing, they're going to be forced to go to ever-declining state and public facilities. So what do you think of that idea of state-proofing one's health care? Mm. Yeah, look, I think, you know, conceptually, people doing it with things like electricity by going off the grid or getting boreholes or, you know, private education. But, you know, if the state does succeed in, in this NHI proposal and removing the ability to purchase private care, I think it's going to be very difficult to state-proof yourself. Uh, you know, that's, it's not, you can't, citizens can't be self-sufficient in providing their own health care because it needs, they need professionals to deliver it and those professionals need to be paid. Um, and as you said, it's only going to be the very wealthy who will be able to go overseas and buy health care there which would be a very small percentage of, of the population. So I, I, I think more importantly, I, I think if I was to say, what, what should the average citizen be doing is to say, make sure this policy proposal doesn't materialize. Let's fight this thing tooth and nail, uh, because we have a world-class private sector that can, with the right framework, uh, regulatory framework, which it needs, uh, could expand substantially. And that you know, would give uh, wider access to, to more citizens, um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, an expanding private sector would actually be better for everybody, including the public sector patients who rely on, you know, public sector healthcare. Okay. 
moving on to our final question uh, for today, unless uh, anyone puts anything forward in the comments. So we still have Mike for another five to 10 minutes. If you have specific questions for him, just Mike from my side, is, is there or what is the alternative to fixing healthcare in South Africa? So we've got the well-documented poor performance from the public sector. The private sector is unfortunately becoming ever more expensive. Uh, how is there a balance? And if so, how do we get right? If you, I mean, we just said, don't give the Minister of Health all these powers, but if we made you Minister of Health and possibly Tsar of the Treasury, how would you fix healthcare in South Africa? I think, uh, no thanks on the public appointment, though. it's not my, <laughs> my seeing that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, we can probably broadly split that into, you know, private and public and say, how can we, how can we see them working together? But also in the own right, they need, they each need quite a lot of fixing. Um, I think the issue relies on what is, what is policy at the moment. And policy, unfortunately, still stands as this NHR bill that's there. Um, it is, as I mentioned, I think a bit earlier, it's, it's 13 years old. It, was, it came, became official policy in 2009. We had to also look at where the ANC was in 2009. In April, they won the national elections with just shy of 66% of the national vote. So they were in a very strong position. Uh, policy like this didn't really, you know, if there were critics, it didn't really concern them too much because of the, the extent of, you know, the electoral support that they had. But I think that a lot has changed now. And I think ultimately this policy process needs a rethink. Whether the ruling party has the ability to to you know to, to go through the kind of reform to change i'm not sure but i'll give you what i what i think you know would happen i mean given we've seen what's on those outlined in the commission i mean it's it's, it's been shocking um and it's going to proliferate under nhr if it carries on like it is because you know we saw about the weak governance uh, model uh, the centralization of vast amounts of money so we know that will carry on I think COVID demonstrated how the public and private sector can work together well in terms of meeting a, a very specific healthcare need. And I think if we look at NHR's massive tax, tax bill, the tax tag, the, the price tag on it that requires substantially uh, increased taxes, I think to the extent of something like an additional 3% of GDP from what we currently have, and the fragile economy we have, it's just not going to happen. Um, so I think. Carrying on with NHR is a waste of time and money because it, it can't actually it can't actually come about because it just it simply doesn't have the money that government is requiring for this policy process to be to be passed through. Um, so I think to to go back to to the to each sector and look at how we can do that, I think it's about improving uh, efficiencies to get more out of the same level of resources that we have uh, in the public sector. The obvious thing, and I think this applies to many departments, is the mismanagement, the fraud, the poor governance that, that is the Achilles heel of the public health department, which we can witness in the medical malpractice liability, which is now sitting at 120 billion rand uh, a number, you know, which is an astronomical figure, given that that's half the total annual public health budget for this last financial year. Uh, but that, but it's a reflection of, of the inefficiencies of the health system, and it's costing a lot of money, which is drawing away resources that could otherwise expense. Unless we fix this problem, the public health sector is just going to decline continually. So that it needs to be reversed. We need to get the right people into the, uh, those posts. We need to get the fraud. Obviously, I mean, I speak ideologically, but you know, we need to get all that stuff out. Otherwise, the public health sector is just going to to decline to to where it is. On the, on the private sector, though, and I think a positive is that 
um, we've got the health market inquiry, which was a very intensive, in-depth, uh, evidence-based six-year study by the Competition Commission on what the problems are in the private sector. So actually, we don't even need to do any planning there. We could literally just take that up, lift it, and say, let's do it. But it requires the political will to get that done, and I'm not sure that's there. But that is a blueprint that I think could work. And if that does work, we expand the private sector. And as I've said now, probably more than once, that an expanding private sector is good for everyone. Um, we see it in countries like Brazil, who I think if I remember, Brazil's per capita GDP is something like three times South Africa's. Well, they're still a developing economy, but they're much wealthier than we are. And they have more money to spend on healthcare than we do. Their, their health spend is per capita much higher than that. But they still provide tax incentives for, for um, private sector players to come in, whether it's providers or insurers, to actually expand the private sector because they have a good understanding of what an expanding private sector does for absolutely everybody, not only the people in it, but the people who then rely on the public sector, the, the, you know, the limited resources in the public sector. So I think it would be nice to see our government switch to this more progressive policy thinking rather than these these very grandiose and ideologically driven NHR type uh, systems, which you know have massive massive potential for failure because they're such broad, white, sweeping changes to everything. Um, so yeah, I think I think a change in thinking would really bring about uh, necessary reforms. Whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> thanks, Chris. I, I have time, so if if, the, if there are questions, I'm not interested. So. Yeah, that's part of the sort of advocacy work that we we try to do is change the we obviously suggest policy proposals and ideas but also just changing the sort of thinking around the role of the state and and people's participation in society and how we can try and sort of push things in a more free and we argue prosperous direction we do have a question about the um zondo report specifically so you now have to don your your sort of predicting cap as it were um, and tell us whether you think any real prosecutions will come out of the Zondo report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a contradiction of a cynical optimist. <laughs> so my cynicism tells me that I don't think so, but I'm optimistic that, you know, I, I, let's put it this way, I don't think it will come from the current, current government. While, as long as they remain in power, I don't think it will happen. I think, I, think the, I think the ANC is too... It, it's it's too interwoven into its its current structure that's it's tied together with the patronage networks that it's built over years and to disassemble it, it will it actually it'll be in the same position that fw clack was in, in in the early 90s he knew that to to change to make the changes he knew it would be the destruction of the national party um and he went ahead and did it and rightly so but um i don't think the anc's got that that I don't think it has enough of its of, of the of its uh, moral compass left anymore to to say to itself, okay, we need to reform, we need to change. So to answer your question, in the current form, I don't think so. Um, maybe if by some miracle we have a coalition government after 2024, maybe I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, I think we should, we should look at the next sort of two to three years. We've got the upcoming. Uh, ANC conference at the end of this year that can tell us a bit about where yeah. the party is going internally at least we've already got movements now with people vying for power positions with putting out op-eds and in the media it's and that kind of thing it's, so. it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna be a circus this year that's all, all we can be saying <laughs> well, may you live in interesting times we can't yeah. complain about that at all. 
Um, but Mike, yeah, I, th I think we will wrap up there. Thanks for for your time today. It's been 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 really good getting your analysis of the NHI and Zondo. So thanks for for joining us. No, thanks very much for having me on. Thanks to the guests and listeners, etc. And yeah, much appreciated. Take care. Thanks very much. To those of you who joined us live today, thank you very much. As always, we greatly appreciate your support. Before you leave, if you haven't yet, please like the video, um, comment afterwards, make some suggestions and leave your ideas. And also, if you haven't yet subscribed to our channel, we greatly appreciate your support. Please look forward to more episodes in coming weeks and months. Until next time, uh, take care out there and we'll chat soon. Bye-bye.